It is on. Just checking. We're going to be reading out of Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. And it's in page 1165 in your pew Bibles, if you want to follow along. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and will rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear as uh, Pastor Aaron uh, would share what it is that you've put on his heart to share. And Lord, we just pray that these words would be transformational in our life and affect our day-to-day -day, uh, time here on earth. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dave. Quick housekeeping item is uh, I've been told that the restroom should be done by next Sunday. And I want to prepare you. It is now one stall in each restroom. So for those of you who've been here for four or five years and have never locked the door to the restroom behind you, lock the door behind you or you might be surprised. So we're going to continue our time in Philippians. Uh, for three weeks, we have seen the Apostle Paul appeal to this Philippian church, including today, for unity. It all started in Philippians 1.27. It should be up on the screen, and I'll read it for you again. If you still have it open in your scripture, it's probably on the page to your left. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And the basis of this unity is Jesus, his humility, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. And as Tyler helped us to see last week, this morning we move into this final section where on the basis of Christ's work and Christ's work church alone, Paul charges the Philippians to do three things, to obey, to be holy, and to have joy. So will you pray with me as we get into our text. Father, thank you that we have your son who obeyed so that we could follow his example. God, we thank you for your son who was holy, who paid the penalty for our sin so that we can strive on our own to be holy. And God, that that is true joy. And so would you be glorified in our time together this morning? Would it be joyful for us? And we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So first, we said, is Paul's charge to obedience. He appeals to obedience, and obedience has two agents, us and God. So let's look at verses 12 and 13 again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so the thrust of these two verses is to the collective church. Therefore, on the basis of Christ's example that we saw last week, Paul's charge to the Philippian church is to continue to obey. Paul starts with an endearing term. He says, beloved. And I don't know about you, but normally I don't use the term beloved for people that don't have my last name. He showers upon this church affection. And even though he is correcting them, they are loved not just by Paul, but they are also loved by God. And so Paul, he appeals to their past obedience. And he calls them to persist in their obedience in the days ahead. If you're familiar with the Apostle Paul, back in Acts chapter 16, he came to Philippi. He planted this church in Philippi, and he expects them that the response that they had to the gospel and the things that he called them to, that they would continue to obey and follow today. So think about it like this. So Marty is no longer an elder or pastor for us here at Cornerstone, and neither is Jamie nor Craig. But if they see us deviate from the Bible, if they see us deviate from the gospel, we might get a phone call, or we might get someone showing up. Hey guys, you used to obey, but now you haven't, and now you aren't. And so Paul, like this here, is saying, you've been obeying in the past, you need to continue to obey in the future. And it's a pretty simple command. Paul is charging this church to live like Christians. To live as a Christian is to have an attitude of obedience. We're Christians, we obey God. Obey, where we work out our salvation. 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 10 is an amazing section of scripture and I think it helps to color some of what we're talking about this morning. I'll read um, verses seven to nine. Paul says to Timothy, his protege, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promised for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and is deserving of full acceptance. Where we toil, but it's valuable. Godliness is valuable today, but it's also valuable for in the end when God completes our sanctification and he brings us into glory. And remember, the foundation of this grace is the free gift of Christ. The privileges of salvation for that are for us today. And there is more benefit to us in the age to come. So as you've obeyed, 
he charges to continue. Yeah, but I, I finished that Bible reading plan a couple years ago. I don't really need to do it again. Or I've served in Operation Christmas Child for years and years and years. So I think next year I'll take it off. Or VBS, I've been teaching that class for a number of years and I'm just not into it this year. As you've obeyed, keep obeying. Keep working out your sanctification. Paul is telling them not to stop. Verse 13, he says, we work out our own salvation for or because God is at work within us. God who keeps his promises, the one who began the work, who will bring it to completion, as we saw in chapter one, will bring it to completion. Again, he's reminding us of the same thing. And God is the reason for us to put forth effort. I want to be clear, this is not a salvation by works. Because we know that Paul corrects that, right, in other writings that he has. But Paul calls us to an active pursuit of our obedience, this process of sanctification that we all participate in. And remember, the words you hear are plural. Work out y'all's salvation. It's a collective salvation. It's a collective growth that we participate in where we are to work out in our each other's sanctification. It's not just sit there and get to work. It's let's get to work together. And our American tendency, I think, is to, to focus on ourselves. It says there right in the text, right? Work out your own salvation. Aaron, it's, it's about me. But remember, every you in this passage this morning is plural. I'll work on myself. You work on you. Friends, we work together. And it is difficult. A few years ago, I was reflecting on some challenging situations in our church in California. And oftentimes, you'll probably hear me ask a question when a decision needs to be made is, what is most loving? If we base our decisions and our actions on what we see on the back wall when you walk in, to love God, love others, and make disciples, it's a simple question to consider. What is most loving? Is what I'm doing loving to God and is what I'm doing loving to others in the church? And we'll often respond to a request, okay, fine, I'll go serve in the nursery or I'll take out the trash or I'll clean up outside or fine, I'll pack some boxes. And those are great things to do. But what is most loving? What about loving each other enough so that we each can become more holy? What about fighting for someone else's holiness as much as we want to fight for ours? And I use the term fight for a reason. I'll wake up, I'll read my Bible when I want to read my Bible, or I'll pray when I want to pray, and I'll pray the prayers that I want to pray. And I think fighting is a more aggressive term. And if we're honest, we don't fight for our holiness very much, and myself included in that. 
And that's probably why we don't fight for each other's holiness in the process. And so friends, I think the greatest way that we can love each other is to help each other be more holy. We help each other to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we help each other to love each other as we love ourselves. And the result of this is we make more and more disciples. And then we rinse and we repeat. We love God, we love others. We love God, we love others. It's a cycle of making disciples. And Paul calls us to do this with fear and trembling. He, he calls us to do this soberly. He calls us to do this with a fear, an adoration, a respect of God in all that we do. It's like a respect of the Father when he looks at you and you know he said what he meant and he means what he says. It's not a fear, though, of final judgment. It's a fear of a devotion to a loving father. Remember, beloved, he punished his son, Jesus, not us who believe. And it's only been a week or a couple verses for the Philippians where we saw that Christ, he took on the consequence of our sin in his humility, and now he sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. And we remember that it leads us right to thankfulness where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is ruler, that he is reigning, that he is sovereign, that he is in charge. And in your Bibles, it probably says something like for God is or for it is God at work in verse 13. And in the original language, word order doesn't matter as much as it matters in English when we are constructing a sentence. And so you could say like the book on the table is the, to communicate the book is on the table. It's the same exact thing. Someone could even write it in a different order. But as long as you get the words in there, it can make a sentence in the original language Greek. And so to emphasize something, the biblical authors would put the most important words at the beginning of the sentence. So the first word in our sentence this morning is God. And so what Paul is doing here is saying, we work at our salvation, God. Because God, he is the priority, he is the reason. And we work out while God works in. And it might be a bad word for some of us, but it's kind of like an injection where God injects into us. He massages maybe is a better term for us. He massages into us the motivation and the ability to do God's good pleasure. And this, friends, is the outworking of the gospel in our day-to-day -day lives. And what's awesome here is now that Paul has referenced all three of the members of the Trinity in the last three weeks. Two weeks ago, we saw that it was through the spirit of Jesus Christ that this would turn out for Paul's deliverance. He would be help in the presence of sin. Last week, it's through God's humility, his death, his resurrection, providing a means of deliverance from the penalty of sin. As we look at Jesus' model of looking after each other's interests more than our own. And today we see that the God, the Father, 
the one who is working in us, ultimately glorifying us as we progress in our sanctification. Ultimately, the end of the power of sin in our lives. And friends, God's own graciousness, God's own gracious purpose, he does it all for us. Where it's God's love and grace that will see this to the end. John 15, five, Jesus says this. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Healthy things take time to grow. Rest assured, God is working in you. He's promised that he would. And so we are called to faithfulness. We are called to maintain, as Paul is saying here, our obedience. We are called to work out our salvation. We are called to trust, to trust God is working in us. And even if we don't see that day-to-day growth, he will and he is growing. He will complete our salvation in the end. Join us Wednesday night, we're gonna talk about that. That's the motivation to continue to obey and work ourselves. And Paul says God works to will and to work in us. And it's not whimsical or flippant where God transforms our inner being, our will to do things. And it's intentional in our growth. Like we'll see next month, I guess that starts tomorrow. Next month, Black Friday, right? We, all these people, they see the 699 waffle iron and they want to go and be intentional of getting in line at the store, getting in there. We're going to rack our route through the store to make sure I get that waffle iron. That's intentionality. That's a will and that's a desire. And Paul says even our will, our desire to do good comes from God. And the link here is that Philippians are part of God's overall agenda for a joyful church to be conformed more to the image of Christ. Where our minds are transformed. It changes our hearts and then it changes how we act and how we live. God will bring our salvation to completion. Friends, he is working and we can strive for progress together. Individuals, we make up a corporate body. As I grow, as you grow, we collectively grow. And God will complete that. And we can be honest, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes my growth is for other people as well. When I'm a jerk at home, it's more pleasurable for my family when I'm not. When we see each other grow, it's a joy to watch. It brings God's glory. It's loving to God and loving to each other to grow, but it can be hard. And Paul appeals to our obedience while we work and God works, but he knows that it's hard. And so in this next section, Paul appeals to steadfastness. And like obedience has two agents of us and God, steadfastness has two recipients, the church and the world around us. Let's look at verses 14 to 16. 
Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is the working out of our salvation where we work and God works. And as things get hard, as the Philippian church struggled, they're urged that we are not to grumble or to quarrel as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work within you. And the picture here that Paul is referencing is from Deuteronomy. After Israel escaped as slaves of Egypt, they were going to take back the land and they had sent out 12 spies and not all of them came back with excitement of taking back the land. And so God punished them and disciplined them by having them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And there's where Israel grumbled. They forgot they used to be slaves in Egypt. And Moses reminds them of the events that have transpired in the past. Deuteronomy 32, verses 4 to 5. The rock, God, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And Moses reminds them a couple verses later in verse seven, remember the days of old. He's saying, remember that you used to be slaves. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you. Friends, remember where you've come from. The members of God's people who can recount that what has taken place, let them remind you so that you don't fall back into the ways of complaining and grumbling. You were slaves, now you're not. Stop grumbling. Friends, we were slaves to sin, now we're not. We shouldn't grumble. Paul's positive reinforcement of working out your salvation has now changed to a negative correction. Like the old Bob Newhart sketch, many of you have probably seen that, where the lady comes in for some counseling and he says, for $5 you get two words. Everything after this first five minutes is free. The lady shares her problems and he says, okay, I have those two words. And so she gets out a pen to write it down and he says, no, 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 you don't need to worry about that. It's very simple. No, no, I'll, I'll write it down. No, 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 you don't need to. And what does he say? Stop it. That's all he says. Paul says, stop it. So that we could be, not only so they could be, three things. Blameless, innocent, and without blemish. The term blameless is not perfect, but it's a life that cannot be criticized because of sin or evil. Innocence means we should be pure, unadulterated, and without sin. And without blemish, it points back to the Old Testament law where the sacrificial system required animals without blemish for sacrifice. They are as perfect as possible. 
And the Philippians, like Christians, like the rest of us, they were already adopted as God's children. Romans 8, you can turn there if you'd like, a couple books prior to Philippians. Paul says this about our adoption as God's children. In verse 15 of Romans chapter 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. Paul calls this Philippian church, he also calls us to become like God's perfect children. Not as slaves like we used to be, but as children who reflect the character of our Heavenly Father without blemish. And we grow in our perfection in the midst of a distorted people. The crookedness is the same word that we get in English for scoliosis. And those who have deviated from God's standard, have strayed from God's path, are crooked, like a crooked back. And this twisting and crookedness here is intense. It is within the people of Israel, but it's also within this church in Philippi. The world we live in is tough, right? The world around us complains a lot about it, don't they? Who likes almost $4 for gas? Muttering about the government and their foolish decisions. We don't need to be fake, pretending that things aren't hard. Or even things around us do. But let's not look past the trees and miss the forest. Friends, we should be thankful. Can we agree that the last 18, 20 months have been pretty hard at times? Israel, they grumbled in the desert, forgetting that they used to be slaves in Egypt. And our circumstances can be unpleasant, but friends, we have nothing to grumble about. Friends, we were dead in our sins, and now we are alive in Christ. We have nothing to grumble about. The world is hard, but to live is Christ. Working out our salvation, where God works in us, that which God brings, begins, he will also bring to completion. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. We're God's people, we should be thankful and grateful. In chapter four, we'll see that we are to be content but we work. We don't just sit there. And the recipients of this steadfastness are not just for the church, it's for the world around them. Where we shine as lights in the world in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. And probably some of you have already thought of, well, maybe Jesus had said something like in Matthew 5, 16, where he said, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. But this language actually comes before Jesus was alive in human form in Daniel chapter 12. You can turn there if you'd like. I'll read it for us. 
At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who was charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been seen. There was a nation till that time. I'm sorry, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at, those, but at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found and written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and the seal of the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And you may know the story of Daniel, where Daniel and his friends, right, they were part of these exiled Israelites that were in Babylon. And they were living under an unreasonable, ungodly king, causing God's people to worship idols. Might sound familiar. Daniel's circumstances, though, friends, I think are worse than the church in Philippi. And I think Daniel's circumstances are worse than ours today. In Genesis, Abraham was blessed so that he might be a blessing. Moses calls Israel to look different so that the world around them would see how great God is by the way they lived differently. It's not just to be different, but it's to show how God is perfect. That the world would want to follow the God whom we worship. And when we, crumb, when we grumble and complain, where is the focus? It's on us. But when we shine as lights, where is the focus? It is on others. Like the moon reflects the sun, we reflect Christ to the church, but we also reflect Christ to the world around us. Friends, we are to be different. Look at Facebook or whatever it's called today. Complaining about the government, complaining about our neighbors, complaining about the Red Sox not being in the World Series, complaining, complaining, complaining. We are to look different. As we've seen for the last three weeks, we need to be unified where the world is divided and the inward transformation that God brings about for his people through the power of his resurrected son will make us, friends, look different. And so do our word choices sound like the world around us? Vulgar. Even that four-letter word from time to time, it's not that big of a deal. Our favorite word, as Marty said recently, as Americans, is the F word, freedom. Do we grumble like our neighbors that the government is ran by sinners like we used to be and they do sinful things? Do our marriages mirror the world, functionally living as roommates within a home or do they mirror Christ and the church and humble submission of the church to our bridegroom? Do our TV habits mirror the world, watching whatever smut is on the television or watching the news for endless hours, teaching us to complain more and more? Or do I financial decisions mirror the world? Running the rat race, building bigger barns, comparing and striving for just one more widget or one more dollar in the bank account, not thinking that we are stewards rather than owners. 
Paul says here that we are to be children of light and we are to hold fast to the word of life. Where friends, we follow God's word. And this is not just a private concern to follow God's word. It affects everyone and it affects everything. We are to work out our salvation. We are to live a certain way. We are to hold fast to God's word, which means believing it, but also means obeying it, as we saw in our first verse this morning. And so do you believe you are a steward or an owner of your stuff? The Bible calls us stewards. Do you believe your marriage is a picture of Christ and the church? Because that's what the Bible says. Do you believe that your parenting models God's parenting of us with love and grace? Because that's what the Bible says. Do you believe your words matter and it can cause things to be built up but also broken down? Because that's what the Bible says. Friends, we hold fast to the word. For when we, when we do, the result is that in the day of Christ, it won't be in vain. Paul's ministry in Philippi started with God's word. Remember, he was there in Acts 16, and they obeyed it. But they didn't continue to follow it. And if they didn't for longer, it would have been vain for Paul. To run in vain, we must, to not run in vain, we must actually know God's word. And there is no maximum amount of understanding and reading your Bibles. Read it as much as you can. We cannot read it enough to max out on our quota. In 2008, the last Great Recession, our family, we lost everything. I was in the mortgage industry. We were over leveraged, we were poor stewards, and we had nothing left. And in 2010, some of our good friends invited us to live in a home for free. They even paid off some of our bills. How do you think they would have felt in 2011 if we had 15 credit cards, which we didn't, but, they, but we just were continuing to live for ourselves and to mismanage and not be stewards of the resources that we were entrusted. Their help would have been in vain. And this beginning of our section this morning is that our manner of life should be worthy of the gospel. Where we are to have fidelity to the gospel. We're to have fidelity to Christ. And at the day of Christ, Paul wants to make sure that we have been faithful. He's referring to that day, which we saw last week, where every knee will bow, where every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Is he Lord and ruler in your life? If he's not, may I warn you that you will confess that he is Lord, but it will not be a pleasant day. It won't be as innocent children whom he loves. And so we've heard the gospel. How will we respond? For those who believe, God brings salvation to completion. Faith is looking ahead to the things that we cannot see, where we trust that God will keep his promises, where we hold on to the words of life as God holds on to us, where God will win in the end, and that is worth boasting about, as Paul says, being proud, like Paul says, that our labors were not in vain. 
I think we can be honest that we can try to be like Jesus, where we can strive, we can work, but our, friend, our, our growth, friends, comes from Jesus, where God works in us. Our growth comes from being with Jesus. We hold fast to the word as he speaks to us in it and we respond back to him. It's the relationship that we have with him as we converse with him and we submit to what he says in the scripture. I think striving will produce some growth, but working while being with Jesus will produce the most fruit. God keeps his promises. He calls us to obey and he helps us to obey. He calls us to be steadfast for each other but also for the world around us. And finally, we'll see that this is for joy. And joy has two beneficiaries, you and your leaders. Let's pick it back up in verse 17. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So as we saw earlier in chapter two, where Christ was poured out for us, now the leaders of the church pour out for the sake of the church where Christ emptied himself so that we could model an empty of ourselves. And Paul here uses the term of a drink offering to describe this. And for Paul, this refers to his death. The idea of a drink offering comes from the Old Testament sacrificial system where wine was poured out onto the altar or onto the ground, signifying a life of sacrifice. We will see this in Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. We'll celebrate that as a body next Sunday. And Paul is here referencing a life poured out into service for God. Ultimately, this service may end up in his death where Paul's sacrificial service to this church is worth everything so long as they hold fast to the word of life and believe the most loving thing that we can do is to care about each other's sanctification and the salvation of sinners outside of this church. That's, my friends, true love. When we are crooked and twisted, we need the gospel. And the world is crooked and twisted and they need the gospel. And when we receive the gospel, it's for our joy. It's for all of our joy. The salvation of sinners and the sanctification of saints brings great joy to the church. Where the agents of obedience are us and God, the recipients of steadfastness are us and the world, and the beneficiaries of joy is all of us together as we see God move more and more in the world and the church. Paul started with positives, you've obeyed, now continue to obey. He moved to negatives, stop it. Be steadfast for the sake of the church and the world around us. And now he finishes with positives for joy. My joy and your joy. And so friends, the gospel makes all of this possible. And so though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Jesus didn't need to work out his salvation. 
He's God. He was without sin, but he died so that we could, that we could work because God completes the work in us. Jesus was the blameless and innocent, spotless sacrifice, and he didn't grumble or complain so that we could be blameless, innocent, and spotless without blemish. Jesus was the sacrificial offering poured out for our faith so that we could have perfect joy as we trust in his sacrifice on our behalf. The gospel, friends, is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Fidelity to the gospel, a life worthy of the gospel, fidelity to Christ, to not labor in vain, is worth it. And friends, when we don't have fidelity, Christ's fidelity to the Father and perfection brings our salvation to completion anyway. And so it's Reformation Day today. As revealed in the scripture alone, we are saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone. We don't earn anything, but we do put forth effort because God has earned it all for us. In response to him, our love for him, our joy because of him, is for God's glory. And so as we continue to work out our salvation, friends, with fear and trembling, remember, it's God who is at work within you for God's good pleasure, but also for our joy. It's a joyful cycle where we stumble and we rest. We rest on God's promises to bring to completion that which he started. And we put one foot in front of the next, in front of the next, until we take our last breath. And that's a life that is worthy of the gospel. That's also a God worth worshiping, which we will do right now. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for sending your son to die in our place on the cross and for our sins, that he obeyed so that he could pay the penalty for our lack of obedience. God, this world in which we live in is hard, and so we stumble at times. God, would you give us steadfastness for each other and for the world around us, and that, God, that that would be joy for us, joy for each other, joy for the world around us. And so, God, would you give us joy this morning as we sing to you, for you, because of you, for how great and mighty you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and join us in worship at this time?